It's Tuesday, August 24th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The FDA has finally granted full approval to the COVID-19 vaccine made by Pfizer to those 16 and older. Children under 11 are still not approved, and those ages 12 to 15 can get the vaccine under emergency use authorization. With this approval, the hope is that some hesitant people might now get their shots, but also that more businesses and local governments might start mandating them. Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News, joins us for what to know about Pfizer's full approval. Next, to help with the evacuations of Americans and Afghans from Afghanistan, the Pentagon has activated a little-used program called the Civil Reserve Air Fleet. 18 aircraft will be provided from some major airlines, and it is not expected to impact operations here at home. Leslie Josephs, airline reporter at CNBC, joins us for this and also the coming vaccine mandates from airlines. Finally, over 75% of pregnant people have not been vaccinated, and doctors are reporting that they are seeing more young and healthy pregnant women ending up in hospitals on ventilators or delivering babies prematurely because of COVID. There are also some extra precautions needed in treating pregnant patients, like making sure their oxygen levels are higher. Shira Stein, reporter at Bloomberg Law, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. About 30% of people who um, have not yet been vaccinated are saying they've been waiting for this approval. And I'm um, really looking forward to seeing the impact of this approval, especially on those 30%. Joining us now is Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me. Well, the FDA has finally granted full approval to the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. We've been waiting for this for some time. It was in December, I believe, when it was approved on an emergency use basis. But now we got the full approval. The big hope, obviously, is that more people would be willing to take the vaccine now that it has been fully approved. Right, exactly. I think one of the concerns that some people raised about the vaccines is they, you know, it wasn't fully, it didn't have full FDA approval. And, and so I think that maybe to them meant like it didn't have the full, I guess, kicking of the tires that a, an FDA approved product would. So this could help, I guess, reassure some individuals, but perhaps more powerfully, I think you might actually start seeing more companies and, and agencies institute vaccine mandates with a full approval, because now they can kind of point to this as like the final straw that they needed to institute a mandate. And already today, you're seeing that like a couple local agencies in New York and New Jersey, the military came out and said, with this FDA approval, they're going to require COVID-19 vaccine. So that's probably the bigger implication, right. just in terms of numbers of people. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the process that goes into it because even the full approval was fast-tracked and I don't want people to get scared away from it. Pfizer had to submit so much data to be considered for it to be fully approved that they had, they sent in some 340,000 pages for their approval application. I mean, there was a lot of data that went into it. Yeah. I mean, and the FDA was obviously hurrying because of the importance of this in this emergency, but like in terms of like what they did to expedite it, it was more just like putting more reviewers on or, you know, it wasn't like they cut corners or didn't go through their process right. or anything like that. And, you know, some people were kind of wondering why is the FDA taking so long in general to get full approval. And they basically like kind of had just like this is how the process goes. They had to wait for an additional six months of safety data. And so that, like you said, the EUA for Pfizer's vaccine, the first one in the United States came in um, December. And so they had to wait, you know, six months f for data and then, you know, a couple months to 
collect and analyze and, and review it and, and make sure everything looks good. So they were, you know, moving expeditiously, but they were also, you know, there, there were sort of benchmarks that they had to right. hit, including that six months of, of additional safety data. And so that's why the approval came when it did. So who is covered in this full authorization? Because I know 12 to 15 year olds are still under emergency use authorization. Right. What's the breakdown on it? Yeah, so the full approval goes for people 16 and up. And again, that's just because that's the group that was under the original F, uh, EUA, excuse me. And so that's why the FDA now has six months of additional safety data on that group. The EUA for the Pfizer vaccine for 12 to 15 year olds came later. So there hasn't been that six month follow up yet. So that's why there's this difference where the 12 to 15 year olds are still under EUA for the Pfizer vaccine, whereas 16 and above are part of this full approval. Now, obviously, the FDA is giving full approval for all of this, but they did say that there were some risks associated with this, some uh, risks of uh, two types of heart inflammation that mostly affected younger men. They're called myocarditis and pericarditis, and they're basically inflammation of, of different parts of the heart and the area around the heart. And, and health officials have been seeing this with both the mRNA vaccines for the past couple of months, like initially in Israel, where they rolled out vaccines really quickly. And then subsequently in other countries as well, including in the U.S. And so this has been on their radar for a while. And actually, like, uh, I can't remember, it was maybe a month or two ago, they added the risk of myocarditis and pericarditis to the sort of information prescribers get for who give out vaccines and also people get when they receive their vaccines for both Pfizer and Moderna. But like you said, so far, it appears to be most common within about a week of people's second shot, because these are two dose regimens. And like, the risk is highest for men under 40 compared to older men or women overall. And then it's the risk is per, like the highest risk is among 12 to 17 year olds. And I should be clear that like, there's a risk and they've seen this and it appears to be a rare side effect. But it's again, it's very rare. And most cases appear to have been mild and sort of resolved on their own. And what experts would also tell you is that myocarditis and pericarditis, there are a lot of different causes, but a common one is a viral infection and the rates of both appear to be much higher after a COVID-19 infection than from these vaccines. What's next then for all the vaccines? We're still waiting for Moderna to get their full approval. That'll take a little bit of time. And then beyond that, uh, even for Pfizer, the next step for them is more data on younger kids, right? So that they can get the full authorizations there. Yeah, there, I mean, there's a couple of routes. Remember, like other companies have also pursued vaccines, you know, companies like AstraZeneca, which is used, their vaccine is used in other parts of the world. Novavax might, you know, is eventually hoping to get on the market. So there's those questions. But, and then there's full approval for Johnson & Johnson and Moderna's vaccines. But yeah, the big question really seems to be when the vaccines are going to be authorized for kids under 12. And that's obviously very pressing with school starting. What the FDA said is that they're just still waiting on clinical trial data from, you know, these, these trials aren't going. So they have to wait for the companies to gather data and then submit them to the agency for review. And so they can't like put a certain time frame on when they're going to authorize this. And what they what they really specify is that like they need these studies to be done in kids because kids are different. They're as as Janet Woodcock, the acting commissioner of the FDA said today, they're not just small adults. So they want to make sure they have the same like they want to make sure they understand the safety profile in kids. And they also want to make sure they have a correct dose to see if they you know, they can use a smaller dose in kids, for example. Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Our military aircraft and others will get them to these centers, but then we're going to get the Civil Reserve Fleet. It's a program that's designed, was designed in the wake of the Berlin Airlift after World War II. 
to use commercial aircraft to augment our airlift capacity. Joining us now is Leslie Josephs, airline reporter at CNBC. Thanks for joining us, Leslie. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about, uh, you know, the situation that's going on in Afghanistan right now. The main thing that we're trying to work through is the evacuation of Americans and Afghans who are working with us there. You know, we've seen how chaotic the airport in Kabul has been. So what the Pentagon did was activate a little used program called the Civil Reserve Air Fleet, which basically orders normal airlines to use some of their planes to help with uh, some of these evacuations. Now, they're not flying directly into Kabul, but they're going to be at other bases and basically helping move, uh, moving people around once they've been evacuated from there. So, Leslie, what are we seeing with this program? This is a, a very little used program. This is highly unusual. Um, in my career, I've never seen this activated. Um, it's only been used three times since its inception in the 1950s after the Berlin airlift. And what it does, it compels passenger airlines and others too. Atlas Air, which flies for Amazon as a cargo airline that has some uh, military charters, compels these carriers to provide additional airlift for the military. And in this case, in Afghanistan, because there's such a mad dash to get as many people out as quickly as possible, we've seen the images and commentary and just kind of these harrowing scenes at the Kabul airport of just kind of how terrorizing it is to the people there that the U.S. is trying to get as many people out as quickly as possible to stop those bottlenecks so that the military can focus on Kabul and securing the airport. They're having U.S. airlines, American, Delta, United, fly people to the United States from bases, bases in Germany and Qatar and Bahrain. So overall, we're getting 18 aircraft from these airlines. What kind of planes are we looking at? Uh, they're not flying 737 Maxes out there, I'm assuming. But what, what are we? What are no, we they're with not flying. <laughs> they're not flying 737s. They're they're bringing out their biggest aircraft. We see uh, Boeing triple seven three hundreds flying. That United actually, their first flight just landed in Dulles from Armstein today. And that plane seats, I think, 350 people. And from what I've heard, it was very full. Delta Airlines has three flights coming in today. They have four planes within the program, 767, A350, A330. Delta had retired a lot of its 777s in in the pandemic. So a a lot of airlines have been kind of slimming down because there wasn't that international travel demand. But they're they're using their biggest planes. And American, once they get started, will will probably do the same with their wide body planes that have that range that can can fly from the Middle East, can fly from Europe to, to pack in as many people as possible. There are only a few planes from each major airline and all that, but are they concerned with uh, any impacts to operations or other more staffing shortages, anything like that? So far, they're saying they're not, and they'll reach out to the customers that are affected. I mean, we are still in a pandemic, and the U.S. is not allowing Europeans in or people who have been in Europe who are non-citizens. The same thing goes for a lot of other countries. So international travel is still pretty muted compared to what we've seen if you've been to a U.S. airport this summer. I mean, lots of crowds and long lines and things like that. And a lot of the rebounds in tourism has come from domestic trips. So some airlines are using some spare airplanes, but we're not seeing the impact. Like, let's say this happened in 2019 when we were all traveling like crazy, especially internationally, um, that would have had a, a wider reaching impact and they needed as many planes as possible. Um, then they could move people around. Also, we're at the end of August. Kids are going back to school um, and the, the travel demand, even for domestic trips, is starting to fall. The Delta variant is starting to have an impact on bookings we've heard from Southwest and Frontier and Spirit. 
So, so far, there isn't a, a big drop. Yeah. But some of the crews also get some extra pay. There's premium pay, we know, for uh, United flight attendants, for example, for doing these trips. And I, I think from what I heard, a lot of crews are just kind of happy to volunteer to sign up for these assignments. Leslie, mm-hmm. uh, while we have you here, I did want to ask, because we did see that the FDA fully approved Pfizer's vaccine, and a lot of people have been saying, you know, that's the thing that everybody was waiting for before mandates started coming. I saw on your Twitter feed that United has a vaccine mandate coming. What are we seeing with the airlines with regard to that? So United has, I believe, the strictest one and the, the widest reaching because we're talking about 68-ish thousand employees. It's all their, their entire U.S. workforce that they're mandating vaccines for. And the way they set up the timeline for when you need to comply by the deadlines are it, it was five weeks after the FDA approves one of the vaccines or by, I think it was October 25th. But now that this full approval of the Pfizer vaccine came out, that puts them at the 27th of September. Some other airlines have followed suit. Frontier Airlines has one, but they do give employees the option if you don't want to take the vaccine, you don't plan to take the vaccine, you can test regularly for COVID. So those are the alternatives. And in all of these cases, if you have medical or religious reasons for not being able to take the vaccine, you're also exempt, but you need to show that to the employer. We haven't seen the other airlines follow suit, though. I mean, Delta, I think they're about 75% CEO said they're 75% vaccinated their workforce. They're about 75,000 people. And American Airlines has also not. They're, what they're doing is encouraging workers to get vaccinated, extra pay, time off. But one thing to note is that Delta, they're new employees, new hires, and they are starting to hire again, very different place than we were a year ago. Those new employees do need to be vaccinated. Leslie Josephs, airline reporter at CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Due to their COVID infection. So in the intensive care unit needing to be on a ventilator or on ECMO, which is essentially a heart-lung bypass machine. Some are having to deliver their babies prematurely and some are actually even dying. It's really, really terrible. Joining us now is Shira Stein, reporter at Bloomberg Law. Thanks for joining us, Shira. Yeah, of course. You recently wrote an article about pregnant women and how some of them are unvaccinated and uh, we're seeing more of them in hospitals. There's an interesting stat in there. As of August 14th, 76.2% of pregnant women were unvaccinated. That's a pretty high number. And as I mentioned, we're starting to see young and healthy pregnant people ending up in hospitals on ventilators and maybe sometimes delivering their babies prematurely. So Shira, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing? Yeah, so I've been speaking to physicians across the country for the last week physicians in Florida and Texas and South Carolina, but also physicians in Los Angeles and Seattle, Washington, who are seeing this new trend with this latest surge in cases. In previous surges, you know, they've seen a couple of pregnant patients here and there, but with this latest surge of COVID cases, they have seen a massive uptick in the number of pregnant people who have ended up hospitalized due to their COVID infection. So, in the intensive care unit needing to be on a ventilator or on ECMO, which is essentially a heart-lung bypass machine. Some are having to deliver their babies prematurely, and some are actually even dying. It's really, really terrible. Now, uh, we've been hearing about this with, uh, you know, even uh, just regular people, right? Breakthrough infections or the unvaccinated. The vast majority of these pregnant women are unvaccinated, but we are seeing some breakthrough infections also. 
Yeah, yeah. So the vast majority, from what I've been told by doctors, there's no real data on this on pregnant people in hospitals right now, broadly. But from what I've heard from the physicians I've spoken with, they've said that most of them are unvaccinated. And if they're vaccinated there, they tend to not be as worse. They tend not to need to be intubated or put on ECMO or any of those other awful things. So that's kind of the only difference that the doctors I've spoken with said is that it's whether or not someone is vaccinated. We do have one study, I guess, though, that was just looking at a, a database of, of hospitals and, and, and comparing patients who gave birth with or without the vaccine. What did we see in some of those numbers? So they actually looked at um, whether or not they were infected with COVID. But yes, so they compared women who were pregnant who had COVID versus women who were pregnant and did not have COVID. And the death rate is 15 times, the intubation rate 14 times, and preterm birth 22 times. So the outcomes are really, really poor for pregnant people who are in the hospital with COVID. The other thing that makes it difficult, obviously, you know, is taking care of a pregnant woman can be a little bit more difficult if they have COVID. One of the ways that they help treat people who are having respiratory distress is putting them on their stomach. And obviously, that's a pretty difficult thing to do with a pregnant woman, depending how far along she is. It's funny. That's something that doctors learned kind of early on in this pandemic when they were struggling to figure out how to treat patients with COVID when we had no therapeutics, when we didn't have a vaccine. They figured out, okay, if a patient's in respiratory failure or respiratory distress, turn them and put them on their stomach. And so that makes it harder, obviously. They still figure out ways to do it, I'm sure, but it definitely makes it harder if you have somebody who has a large stomach because there's a baby in there. So that's, yes, that's definitely more difficult. The the premature birth aspect of this is obviously very concerning. What are we seeing there? I, I know you mentioned, obviously, we, we don't have really big numbers on, on all of this, but what are we seeing on that front? Yeah, the physicians I spoke with said that they're seeing many of these pregnant people give birth early. They're often sometimes even seeing where they will intubate a patient and then sometimes have to do a C-section while they are intubated or have to deliver the baby before the patient is intubated because otherwise there could be oxygen problems for the baby. So, I mean, that's pretty terrible, too. I've also heard some stories about pregnant people who had to give birth who were then or still on a ventilator and then some who've even died before getting to meet their child. So, this whole story is really yeah. terrible, and the outcomes for pregnant people who are who are who get COVID and end up in the hospital and are unvaccinated are just really awful. And some of the reason for the hesitancy that we were seeing was that pregnant people weren't really included in some of the early studies for the vaccines themselves. So the data is very thin on that front. Correct. At the beginning, or with all of the clinical trials, phase one, phase two, phase three, for all three of the vaccines in the U.S. that have been either approved or authorized, no pregnant people were purposefully included in the study. There were a few members of the trials who became pregnant during the trials, and later there was more research done after the vaccines were publicly available and were authorized for the general public, but it took more time to get data on how the vaccines, how safe they are and how efficacious they are in pregnant people. So it just, it took more time, which obviously led to some hesitancy, I think rightfully so from a lot of pregnant folks. Shira Stein, reporter at Bloomberg Law. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.